Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. Welcome to Church in Maine. This is the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. It is a podcast that uh, focuses on religion and public affairs. And I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. This is episode 107. It is a solo episode. I wanted to spend some time kind of trying to explain what this podcast is all about. Um, now, granted, that's also found in your trailer, but this has been an involving podcast, and um, so I think it's always been that the the meaning doesn't change radically, but I think I felt like I needed to do an episode that kind of explains what this um, podcast is all about. Um, so why does it exist? Um, I've always wanted to do a podcast and I've wanted to do a podcast because I've always been fascinated um, at where religion and public affairs or modern life intersect. And of course, I wanted to focus even more specific. I wanted to focus primarily on mainline Protestantism. And I did that for selfish reasons because I'm a mainline Protestant pastor. Um, I've been part of a mainline uh various mainline congregations for the last 30, 30 years. Um, I am leading a congregation, and especially right now, I'm leading a congregation that is going through change. We are selling our building. We are uh, moving to a new location. Um, hopefully, that will be something that will help us to turn around. But like many congregations, we're declining. Um and you know, I'm also part of a denomination, the Disciples of Christ, which is a mainline Protestant denomination that has seen some better days and is dealing with a lot of change. And I've also worked in mainline Protestant organizations. So I'm pretty familiar with that uh, branch of Christianity. It is, it is my home. Um, I wanted, there are podcasts out there that do focus on I think mainline Protestantism, sometimes they'll say it's progressive Christianity. It's for the most part, the same thing. Um, and there are a lot, there are others out there that people probably watch or, and listen to and read and, uh, more than this one. Um, of course, the thing is, is like, what makes um, this podcast different from others? And I think, um, 
what I wanted was a podcast that had somewhat of a, a more critical look at mainline Protestantism. And I, I don't mean that to say that critical is in always panning um, the background or always looking down at it. There, there is also a lot of those things out there that offer lots and lots of basically complaint or critiquing, but really offer no other clues except that, um, at least for me, it gets personal is the sense that, you know, maybe if you weren't so nice to gays, then your churches would do better. Of course, there are churches that have more, you know, very strict interpretations when it comes to homosexuality, such as Southern Baptists, and they are not doing well right now. So, you know, I, I want to be critical, um, but I don't want to offer easy answers. And I think sometimes that there are those podcasts that are critical, but all they really have is a very easy answer that satisfies their viewpoint. On the other hand, there are so many others that are kind of just cheering sections and anything and everything that's progressive, you know, they're down for it. They're cheering it. Um, in some ways it, it feels like a religious version of kind of some lefty podcast that just everything great about being a progressive is cheered on and you just always boo on the other side. And that's not helpful either. I wanted something that makes people think. Um, a lot of people who are, um, you know, I, I think that there are things about this tradition that are great. Um, Manly Protestantism, I think a lot of what America is, I think, and for both good and for ill, but especially for good, would not be had it not been for um, people in mainline Protestant um, denominations. Um, I think especially in the early part, early to the mid part of the last century, a lot of people in mainline Protestant, they were the builders. Um, I'm fascinated, been fascinated by J. Irwin Miller, who was a, a CEO for Cummings Engine. Um, and and uh, really the amazing things he did in his hometown of uh, Columbus, Indiana, um, where he brought for a town that was not kind of a small town, I think maybe about 50,000 people, but he brought some of the major architects of the day, um, I am pay, both of the, the Sarnians of, um, were there to build uh, public buildings. Um, he was the type of, uh, was foundational in helping to create the National Council of Churches. He was very much involved in the Republican Party when they still had liberal Republicans. These were people that were, as I said, were builders. They were important um, aspects of society. And of course, not all of them were CEOs. Some of them, I mean, there were teachers, doctors, lawyers, people like that. But these were people who were, I think, had a role in society and saw that maybe at some point that faith had a role to play. Um, and I think that that history is important to bring up too, because I think too often we don't talk about the importance of that, of this heritage, um, which is why in some ways I, I can be somewhat critical about it is because 
I worry at times that we're um, throwing away such an important heritage. Um, as I said earlier, I'm the pastor of a congregation in suburban St. Paul. And, um, you know, it's like a lot of congregations that has gone through a lot of change. And you're left with a lot of questions about why have things changed and, and how do you help a congregation turn around? What does it mean to be faithful in this day and age? Um, so, you know, some of the reasons that I, I really created this was even to answer some of my own questions. And I know that there are other people out there that have those questions as well. Um, one of the things that's maybe a bit different on this is that I, I really am interested in um, wanting to interview sometimes just, I don't want to say just pastors, but but really getting to um, interview people who are involved in their congregations. So for the most part right now, it's been pastors. Um, I think the next um, podcast will be with a chaplain. I want to kind of deal with people who are on the ground because I think sometimes we don't talk with those people. We talk with kind of the, the bigger people. And um, I want to talk to those people because I think that they have some viewpoints that we don't always hear. And I think that we should be hearing. So some of the podcasts, I think, takes its inspiration really from um, Walter Russell Mead. Uh, he is a writer, a thinker. Um, he has been very much involved. Um, I'm trying to think these days. He used to be involved very much with the American interest. That's how I got to know him. I think these days he is a columnist for the... Um, the New York Times, um, not New York Times, sorry, um, for the Wall Street Journal. Um, I'm trying to think, what is he doing these days? Because I want to say he's with Brookings, but I'm not certain. I don't want to um, say something that's wrong. But um, his his father was Lauren Mead, and Lauren Mead was a um, um, well-known, he was in the Episcopal Church, but in, in mainline Christianity as well as in, in how he was trying to help the church uh, kind of modernize. And so, of course, some of that has um, rubbed off on on, um, on Walter as well. Um, and it, he's with the Hudson Institute, I, I should um, say. So that's who he is with. Um, and, um, and at... Um, at Bard College as well. So he has really some, um, just some fascinating things um, on, on kind of looking at politics and looking at, at religion. Um, and he is um, and has grown up as an Episcopalian. So he has kind of shared a lot about what was um going on in mainline um, Christianity. Um, I think what he has to say for me personally was something that always spoke to me, but, and I think for some people it will speak. I think for others, not so much. It, he's hard. He, I think um, if you're someone, um, especially that may be on more on the political left, um, 
And kind of like where the church is right now, you may not like what he has to say, but I think it's important because I think it's important to hear what he's saying about the, the, basically the survivability of our, of the tradition of mainline Protestantism. Um, And I think that that's important. You know, we don't have to take his, his concept word verbatim, but I think you do need to listen to his words and you have to take them seriously. Um, What I wanted to do is spend a, a, a moment or two kind of sharing an article that he wrote it's several years old now. Um, and this, as I said, is kind of sums in some ways what I am up to, up with um, and, and into. And there are some other people that I'm, I'm fascinated with. One of them actually has been a, um, a guest on the podcast, Frederick Schmidt. He's also someone that I have really relied on a lot. Um, because I think he has brought up some, has been willing to ask, um, ask some hard questions, questions that people <clears throat> give. Um, and so I wanted to read some of this article that he wrote. I'm trying to remember when he wrote it. Oh, yeah, wow. It has been written for a while. This was written back in 2010. Um, and so, like I said, it's, I won't read all of it just because it's long and um, but I hope that you will just listen to this and um, this is what Walter Russell Mead says and this is from um, an article entitled where did the main line go wrong I've written in some of my past posts about the problems faced by mainline churches concentrating especially on the denomination to which I belong the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States Torn by bitter internal strife, its membership is shrinking and aging. Many of its most important institutions are nearing financial disaster, and it is tottering towards the loss of its membership in the worldwide Anglican communion. I do not follow the problems of other mainline denominations as closely, nor do I feel as justified in criticizing other people's churches quite as harshly as I criticize my own. But a few observers doubt that the other mainline denominations, group like the Presbyterians, some of the Lutheran synods, the Methodists, and the Congregationalists face similar, if not identical, troubles of their own. Overall, the mainline churches are losing power and influence in American society, even as their numbers shrink. As a whole, mainline churches are now making the transition from slow decline to progressive collapse. The kind of meltdown now taking shape in the world of mainline religion would be a catastrophe for American life. The decline of religious influence in the population groups historically served by the mainline is already undermining both American politics and culture. Not everyone thinks that the mainline churches are in crisis or that if they are, they need to do something about it. It is certainly true that just because a religious movement is shrinking and unpopular, that doesn't mean the movement has gone wrong. Jesus was deserted by his disciples on the night he was betrayed. That didn't mean he needed to rethink his message. Noah's neighbors mocked and derided him while the ark slowly took shape. That wasn't a sign from heaven that Noah needed to rethink his priorities. If the biggest church is the best church, that is not an argument for evangelicals against mainliners. It is an argument for Catholics against Protestants. 
It is, in any case, a vulgar and unscriptural, unscriptural argument unless used with great delicacy and care. It was Elijah standing alone who was right, not the mass and chanting priests of Baal. It's also true that it would be inaccurate and unfair to paint all the congregations, institutions, and people in the mainline churches with the same brush. I myself know many deeply committed Christians who have lead dedicated lives of service to God and their neighbors in the mainline churches and whose spiritual pilgrimages continue to be refreshed and enriched by their participation in mainline church life. I am anticipating myself and owe a debt to the church that can never be repaid. Finally, it must be said, must be, it must be said clearly that if mainline churches are having problems today, this is largely because of the challenges of the American church in the last 100 years have been extraordinary. We are having a difficult time because we live in difficult times. Mainline churches aren't failing at a simple and obvious thing. There is not some quick fix, doctrinal, managerial, or cultural, that could magically restore them to solvency and growth. The challenges that churches have been dealing with include the collapse of the 19th century belief that geology, archaeology, and written history supported the authority of the Bible, the erosion of the post-millennial view that social progress leading to the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth as part of the spread of Anglo-American religion and social ideas, the revolution in gender relations and family structures that has both theological and practical consequences, the revolution in race relations that forced a deep reevaluation re of American history and values, an international situation increasingly dominated by new perils to human existence against the background of increasing distance between rich and poor, demographic changes inside the United States that affected both the size of the mainline churches and their place in the larger society. This is a partial list. Readers could add more. But we don't need to be whiny and self-dramatizing about the challenges and call them the greatest churches ever faced. I think it's fair to say that the American church has a lot of work to do and that God has granted us the privilege of interesting scenery on the journey through life. Yet at the same time, to stoutly insist that mainline churches are healthy today strikes me as despair masked in denial. It is not okay that more and more local congregations are grimly struggling with deferred maintenance, dwindling membership, and marginal budgets. It is not okay that mainline churches no longer play the kind of role in public debate or intellectual discourse that they did 30 or 50 years ago. It is not okay that the mainline churches have gotten locked into an antagonistic relationship with most of the church in the developing world. It is not okay that the decline of old models of organization and ministry are far gone in decay, but new alternatives are still struggling to emerge. It is not okay that so many young people raised in the church leave never to return and that few come from the outside to replace them. It is not okay that two generations of theological and liturgical innovations introduced with the conscious intention of making the church more relevant, more approachable, and ultimately, well, larger, have left churches smaller and less relevant than before. That it is not the cause of all of our problems, but our failure but there is something that the mainline churches tend to undervalue, especially in the last two generations, and I think our failure to take it fully into account has cost us dear. 
that something is the principle of sustainability. An institution, an organizational model, a congregation must be on a sustainable path. In a world that is changing as rapidly as ours, one must constantly test and retest institutions and structures to see if the assumptions underlying them remain sound, if they have viable economic base, if their strategic direction offers promise. At the deepest level, this involves sustainability of the church itself. The mainline churches do not seem to have thought through some of the basic conditions that allow religious organizations to thrive. Religion will not long prosper as a luxury good. It is not primarily a way that comfortable people who are basically happy with their lives can make their lives even richer and more rewarding. A sustainable religion must convince people that it is necessary to life, health, and spiritual coherence. A church cannot be one club among many or one leisure activity among many. It must present itself as a bedrock necessity. Not all of its members will take the church at this estimate, but unless a critical mass of its members and leaders feel this way, a denomination or a congregation will be entirely dependent on outside cultural and economic forces for its health and even in the long run, its survival. A comfortable church can survive comfortably enough in a general social environment if the general social environment supports church membership and church budgeting. Excuse me. In Eisenhower's America, it was the done thing to be to belong to church. People went, pledged, and participated. Moreover, the generation born around 1920 lived through the Great Depression, World War II, and the terrifying opening years of the Cold War before they turned 30 around 1950. <coughs> Excuse me. These were serious people, by and large, who bought some strong convictions into the church. They were a generation who sought order and were willing to pay a price to build orderly institutions. But times changed, and the confident, affluent mainline of the 1950s has never managed to adapt. The great question for modernist and mainline religion is the so what question. If members are not sinners being saved from the flames of hell, If Christianity is not the one path of salvation offered by a merciful God to a perishing world, if a relationship with God is not the only means to surmount the challenges of each day, much less to meet the great tests of life, why go to church? Why pledge? Why have kids go to Sunday school rather than soccer practice? If all religions are more or less true, why pay particular attention to any one of them? If churches develop their ethical standards from secular society and the general American consensus, why go to church for anything except weddings, funerals, and Christmas carols? What do you learn in a church that you can learn nowhere else? What kind of relationships do you form in church that you can form nowhere else? Why is church going so important to you that you will not only go there no matter what, but you will do everything in your power to encourage your friends and neighbors to join you. Why is church the daily bread you must have, not a lovely garnish on an already full plate? A sustainable religion must have answers to these questions. Otherwise, it will slowly fade away. The mainline churches don't have to give the same answers to these questions that Billy Sunday gave, but they must answer them. 
at the moment too often they don't even try. I do not say that it's a simple thing to answer these questions under contemporary conditions, but I do say that failure to keep this in focus as the most essential thing that a church must do is key to the spiritual weakness and therefore the broader crisis of the mainline church. The mainline church has also failed to apply the principle of sustainability to its political and social activity. In the 1950s, mainline churches were the leading voices in American religion, and they were also the conveners of interfaith cooperation. It is difficult to be both the religious establishment and a voice crying out in the wilderness. The mainline churches have, generally speaking, failed to do this well. They have lost the most influence they once had as moral leaders in society. I cannot think of one mainline theologian whose voice is heard on the national scene today, nor do the pronouncements of any mainline preachers and, or teachers or groups of leaders seem to have any discernible effect on the national conversation. In excusing this failure, I've heard mainline leaders attribute it to the courage and moral consistency of their witness on key social issues. This is just not true. There have been many examples in past history of churches and other groups of religious leaders who have said unpopular things and dare to disagree with Caesar, but whose moral stature and influence have grown and not diminished. The Roman Catholic hierarchy is having trouble today as a result of their failure to manage their own serious internal issues. However, they have historically maintained a powerful and often oppositional voice in society. Time is growing short. I do not know if the churches can pull out of the death spiral. Revolutionary options like widespread denominational and parochial mergers, the virtual end of church bureaucracies, the end of the seminary system, and a sale of a large number of church properties will all have to be considered on the administrative side. Spiritual renewal is even more important. Without an extraordinary surge of passion and commitment from people, who believe that a revived mainline ministry can save souls, change lives, and perhaps save the world, and who are willing to build their lives around this commitment, it is hard to see these slow-thinking, slower-moving, stiff-jointed, and elderly giants of American religious landscapes scrambling to safety as the floodwaters rise. And that was from Walter Russell Mead. And I said that was written in 2010. And in some ways, I wonder if the if the situation is even worse now. Um, I know that there are people who would listen to this and would vehemently disagree with what he had to say, um, probably calling him a, a conservative or a fundamentalist or a right winger. And like I said, there's probably some things that you won't agree with. I probably wouldn't agree with everything that he says, but I think that he has a point. And I think that this is what the point of this podcast is. I really think that this is an important um, tradition. And I think even more so it's hard right now because I think we have, um, I think especially in the rise of Donald Trump and, and how much the American evangelicalism kind of fell in line with Trumpism, I think what happened is that that, that in some ways has 
really dampened, if not stalled, any type of spirit of reform in mainline Protestantism because it's so much more interesting to focus on all that's going on in evangelicalism. Um, maybe even that there's a silent hope that it will fall and um, will do well and um, that we will return. But I don't think that that's happening. And I think even more so, um, there was a time that, you know, I think American evangelicalism has always been hard to be the voice in a way that mainline Protestantism could be. Um, and I think the dangers now um, within American evangelicalism is that we're seeing, of course, the rise of Christian nationalism. And I think it's sometimes important to separate and sometimes say there is it's sometimes a difference between evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. There are places where they intersect, so I'm not going to say that they they have nothing in common. That's not what I'm trying to get at. But I think too easily, and um, we've made those two equal. But I think what we're seeing and giving rise to is something that's far more darker, um, where God really is in the service of the state, or at least in the service of a a vision of America that is not necessarily helpful or the vision that I think many of in mainline even a century ago would have supported. And I think that that's, that's really where we need to be involved. And I think, I think we don't have that same pull in society. Um, this is something I want to write about sometime, but there was a, a there's a subsect that I, I sometimes follow by two pastors. I think one is Baptist, one is disciples of Christ. And they were asking a question about um, the fact that the New York Times has um, a few evangelicals that they have that they are either regular columnists. Um, um, one of them is Trish Warren Harrison, who is, and uh, the other one is Esau McCauley. Um, both of them are uh priest in the um, Anglican Church of North America, which is kind of a splinter off of, it's kind of a more conservative splinter group from the um, from the um, Episcopal Church. And they were kind of upset that they didn't, that they had these people on there. Um, the funny thing about both of these two, both Macaulay and, and um, Warren Harrison, or, um, is that they are willing, I mean, they're both I think in many ways conservatives, but I think in many ways they're willing to go against the grain of evangelical culture. Um, I think that's why they're on the New York Times. If, if all that they were going to do is spout the same kind of conservative and, and especially political conservative stuff, I don't think that they would be there. But um, Tish Warren Harrison has at times especially recently um, about um, she is pro-life, but she's also very much stressed the importance of how we must care for, for women and for children and why there should be government programs to offer that. Um, Esau McCauley being African-American has very much, I think, challenged, especially American evangelicalism when it comes to race. But I think the two people who um, run the subsect were saying was that why aren't there more progressive voices? And I think the problem here is this, is that if we had more kind of mainline voices, and I know many of them, they wouldn't say anything that different from 
I think, the Democratic line. And that's that's the problem, is that I think 50 or 60 years ago, especially during the Civil Rights Movement, um, mainline Protestant denominations had something to say. And it was something that was different from what was a party line in, in, in political parties. They were saying something in some ways that was prophetic. And, you know, we talk a lot about, and especially um, as an African-American, of Martin Luther King coming from the Black church tradition, that w- that he did come from that. But he also came from a mainline Protestant tradition. And in many ways, what he said, but I think also what the church was saying at the time, was far more prophetic than it is today. Um Today, pretty much it feels like they're just kind of, what they're saying is not that much different than what a, a democratic politician would say. And I think that's part of the problem, is that mainline churches don't have anything interesting to say. And um, I think that that's why we need to kind of look into how can we change things and how can we make this turn things around in this tradition. And again, also because I'm also gay, I'm I'm not suggesting that the, the idea is that we all become more politically conservative or theologically conservative. But I think as Walter Russell Reed said, we have to have something to say. We have to ask why is it why should people come to church? Why should people be Christians? Because I think Mainline denominations haven't asked that question, or they've given up asking that question. If you don't have an answer for that, why would anyone want to come? I I, um, am always thankful when I have someone on, like um, Drew McIntyre, who's a Methodist, and um, um, Jeff Mitchell, who is Disciples of Christ, because I think that they are trying in some ways to say this is the answer or who, and not that they have the answer, but that at least they're trying to answer the question, why does this matter? Why does Christ matter? Why does Christianity matter? Why does church matter? Because if we don't ask those questions, if we don't think that they matter, then we're wasting our time and we might as well just give up on church and do something else. So that's kind of, that's a long way of getting at why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and it's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, and I know that there's always going to be a lot of people think I'm a little odd, but this is a tradition that I actually love, even though I think I've been as critical of it um, as anyone else. But um, I wanted to, to not just continue, but I wanted to thrive. And I think especially now in the rise of, of Trumpism and the rise of kind of a Christian nationalism, um, there needs to be another way, another way of talking about faith that is not as demented um, as I think this kind of Trump-infected faith has become. So... 
you know, I'm hoping that this can do, this podcast can do more than just point out what's wrong. I'm hoping that it will spur people who want to build, people who want to build and want to strengthen the tradition. That's really my hope, um, that it will help people to go into the ministry, to become pastors and to help plant new churches and to build other institutions. Um, Because I think that can help make a difference in our world. So that's kind of where I'm at. And um, I wanted just to close to talk a little bit about something that I don't like to talk about much, which is money. Um, And I'm really just asking for people to consider supporting the podcast financially. Um, Your donations would help to pay for the cost of producing the content. Um, Putting on a good podcast does cost some money. And um, it would help um, a lot if you could help. Um, And you can consider to make a one-time donation. It could be something as low as like three bucks. Um, You could make a $5 per month donation. I don't like talking about this much. Maybe it's just me being a pastor and I also just feel weird about it, but I also feel like sometimes I have to ask about the stuff and um, and I also see other religious podcasts do this as well. But um, I'm not one that's going to be doing, at least not for right now, you know, I'll throw in this secret episode or something to that extent. Um, but I do hope that you would consider giving. Um, and if you are interested, um, you can go to the website. That's the new, our new church, our new po- um, podcast website, which is at churchinmaine.org. And if you look in our the navigation, it um, just click on the donate button and you can go from there. Um, and thank you very much in advance. And I also want to thank those who have already given. Um, that means a lot. Um, not simply to a bottom line, but it just means a lot that um, you care. And so thank you. Um, also just consider leaving a review, um, that helps people find a podcast and it also helps to know what people are thinking. Um, and I've also, you can also do that on the website. Um, just go to church on, uh, and look on the navigations where it says reviews and you can go from there to share your opinion. Um, and then finally, um, consider sharing this with a friend, um, If you know someone that might want to listen to a podcast like this, share them the link and um, whatever, wherever you're listening, whether it's on the church, on on the website or on your podcast platform of your choice and um, spread the word about this podcast. So that is it for episode 107 of um, Church in Maine. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for, um, being around for the last year and a half and uh, the kind of um, evolution of this podcast and for listening to me blather on for the last year and a half. Um, And thank you um, just for letting me kind of try to explain where we are right now and where we're headed. So uh, this is Dennis Sanders. Um, If you want to learn more about the podcast, uh, do go to churchandmain.org. That's it for this episode. 
um, of Church and Maine, where it is the podcast is at the intersection of uh, faith and modern life. My name is Dennis Sanders. Take care. Godspeed. And I'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.